So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray and keep that Bible open in front of you in your lap. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for us, the sheep. Father, we pray for our congregation and all the congregations in our valley, Lord, that we would have elders and leaders who are true shepherds. Father, would we have eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so try to place yourself, if you can, right in Peter's shoes, or, you know, I I guess his sandals, if that's what he wore back then. I don't know what the foot attire was like back then. I think it was sandals, right? Uh, Imagine, though, regardless of what the type of footwear he's wearing, try to place yourself, if you can, in Peter's shoes, all right? It's around 60 AD, give or take a few years. Uh, There is a coming persecution, like there are storm clouds off in the distance, so to speak, that Peter can see. He's, he's writing to Christians strewn across Asia Minor, which is our modern-day Turkey, right? And he's, he's reaching out to these churches, telling them that there's going to be persecution and suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, and he wants them to endure and to not become like the world and resort to coercion or force or violence, but to be like Jesus, who was willing to suffer for the truth and continue entrusting himself to God the Father, right? So this is a strategy for Christians looking out, sort of expecting hardship and suffering and maligning for their faith, right? Which is why it's so important for us today to be reading 1 Peter. But imagine now you are in Peter's shoes. Now, Peter's going to die. He's going to prove to be a martyr. In in Greek, that's a Greek word. It literally means witness. He's going to prove to be a witness, a martyr, for Jesus in the sense that he is going to be put to death for the testimony of Jesus in just a few short years. Uh, The the real persecution under the emperor hasn't really uh, uh, come into effect yet, but he sees it coming. And Peter is wondering, and he's writing a letter to Christians, uh, many of whom he's never even met. And he's asking the question, what kind of church will survive this coming persecution? What kind of church can survive Uh, What kind of church can survive when Peter's gone? He knows he is not long for this world, and he knows the apostles are not long for this world. So what kind of church is going to survive when the apostles are gone? And then what kind of church can endure even if it never even meets Peter in person? And, And not just survive, right? Survive is like a bare minimum. We don't want to survive as churches, and Peter doesn't want these churches to survive. He wants them to what? To thrive, to survive and thrive. So what kind of church can do that? Well, 
What Peter says the answer is, or the strategy, if you will, for the kind of churches that can survive and thrive is wrapped up in this idea of shepherd leaders. Notice where he goes in chapter 5. He begins to address elders. You see, what he's doing, of course, is he's doing what many of us would do is he's addressing the leaders. But notice, Peter doesn't use the word leader very often. In fact, the New Testament is scarce to use the word leader. And I think there's something very important for us to pick up in that. Especially today, I think when we think about leadership, we think very much in terms of our own cultural expectations of what leadership is. You know, when we think about church leadership or leadership in your context, we, we bring with us a cultural understanding of what leadership is. Uh, for many of us, it's sort of like the CEO model, right, where he makes the business decisions, uh, there's this sort of managerial style, there's a conflict resolution style, there's a fundraising style, there is a mold uh, that we imagine that every leader is supposed to fit into. And if we're not careful, we expect pastors and elders to fit that model, when in reality, the model that the New Testament painstakingly lays out and Jesus himself models is not that of a CEO, not that there's anything wrong if you're a CEO, but that's not the model of the community of Jesus. The model is of shepherding, shepherds, servant leadership. You know, in Jesus' day and Peter's day, this is going to be hard to imagine because life was very different back then. But in Peter's day, leaders often were notoriously arrogant. They were notoriously proud. They loved to push people around, exercise their power, and use their followers to prop up their own egos. Hard to imagine, right? <laughs> Even worse, leaders in Peter's day saw their positions of power as opportunities to abuse people emotionally and financially and sexually even. Jesus has a different idea of what leadership is, and he doesn't even talk about it, doesn't even say leadership. It's hard to get where Jesus is going. It's a different idea. It's so different, in fact, that Peter and the apostles, when Jesus is alive, don't even really get what Jesus is describing. If you flip over to Mark chapter 10, uh, this is earlier in Peter's life. You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you, but I can summarize in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is uh, going to have an interesting conversation with the 12 apostles. So this is sort of like young Peter. We're hearing from older Peter. This is a, a, a vignette from Peter's earlier life. And what happens is some of the apostles want to get more prestige for themselves. And it's John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. Could you imagine him wanting prestige? An honor? Humble John? Well, listen to how the Gospels depict even the apostles. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do this for us, whatever we ask for you. That's usually not the right way to address the Lord of heaven and earth. Just, <laughs> just for the, let, it, let it be said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's usually not the way you want to address the Lord of heaven and earth. But because Jesus is lowly of heart and meek, who's unwilling to put out a, like a smoldering flame, you know, who will not break a, a broken branch off, 
Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Hear Jesus' humility. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, at one at your left, in your glory. All right, we, want, we, want high, we want to be high up in the hierarchy, Jesus. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, uh, yeah, we're able. <laughs> also the wrong answer. And Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten other apostles heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> hey, buddies, don't cut in line. We want to be at the front of the line too. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, even the apostles are, are not totally clear on what this image of a community would look like. Um, use, use your divine imagination, if you can, for just a second. Try to imagine a community like this. Use your divine, God-given imagination, right? Let's do a thought experiment. Um, imagine a community of people that is non-competitive. A non-competitive community. Imagine a community that's marked by deep humility, where everyone looks to the interests of others, and not only to their own interests. A community where your needs are met because other people care enough about you to meet them, and you care enough about people to meet their needs. Imagine a community that developed leadership from within, from the bottom up, right? The raised up leaders, but not based on their charisma or their height or their family ties or their wealth, but raised up leaders because they shared in the character of Jesus. They remind us of Jesus. Imagine a community in which the leaders were not motivated by money or greed or prestige nor did they raise up leaders who were simply yes-men. And the members didn't exist to give leadership constant affirmation and stroke their egos. Imagine a community that was led not by leaders, but by shepherds. Shepherds. Willing, eager leaders whose very lives were worth imitating because there was just something beautiful about the way they humbly followed Jesus. These leaders did not abuse people. The sheep were not meant to be financially or sexually or emotionally abused, but they had a higher calling to point people to Jesus. You know, I think what Peter and Jesus is getting at in these passages is friends. That's the only kind of community that's going to survive a coming persecution. And if my description of a community didn't make you feel a little jaded, let me tell you something about this thing we call the human race, <laughs> right? We have a tendency to not trust leaders because we've had bad experiences. 
But friends, what I need, the, the leap of faith you've got to get to this morning is that you've got to believe that that kind of community marked by that level of deep humility and love for one another, that kind of community that can survive a coming persecution, this is the leap. You ready? The only way that community can ever happen is if the Holy Spirit of God himself dwelled in the hearts and in the minds of the men and women in that community. Because that kind of true, honest, authentic, humble community is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. It is impossible for a group of people not to be competitive eventually, not to be resentful. It's impossible for people to be put in leadership and not work against the interests of those that they serve unless the Holy Spirit of God was within them making them new, creating in them a new creation, right? And what Peter is saying is the only church that is going to survive, elders, I exhort you, I need you to believe this, you have to shepherd, and you've got to shepherd the way that Jesus, the chief shepherd, shepherds us. That's the church that survives. So I hesitate to call this a sermon on leadership. I'd prefer to call it about shepherds and God's flock. So with that in mind, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 1, and let's see if you can sort of uh, track with where Peter's going with that introduction. Peter writes in verse 1, So, which is an important word, <laughs> I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Right, so he starts off and he's exhorting the elders. And exhort just means like you're encouraging, but you're also calling people to a higher calling. You know, think of it as like a coach, you know, who's like, come on, let's do this, right? It's an exhortation. It's not, it, it's not a request, and it's also not a demand. It's like this better encouragement, right? So he's exhorting the leaders in these churches to do something. But notice that word begins, that sentence begins with that word, so. Did you see that? So, you know, has, a, you know, we don't, sometimes we don't think the words in the Bible are all that important, but I just want to be a nerd for just a second and make a really distinct point that that word really, really matters in the way that you understand this passage, okay? And just try to go there with me. All right, so if you think, but if you just think about the word so, right? You know, have you ever like used that word and realized that even though it's only two letters, it carries a lot of connotations, you know? And uh, I mean, like your spouse is like, man, you know, your mother... My mother-in-law has given, given me a lot of advice these days. And someone goes, so? What's loaded into that word so right now? Is there a lot loaded into that word? Or, you know, if you're sitting around watching TV and you go, honey, your feet stink. And he goes, so? So go take a shower, right? You know, there can be a lot loaded in a word, right? Every husband knows that to be true, Right? So, so what is the word so referring to? Well, if you remember last week, uh, I was suggesting to you that part of what Peter's describing in chapter 4 is he's trying to get the church ready for persecution and suffering. And he even shares sort of this Old Testament belief that when judgment comes, when God lets the world experience some of the consequences of their sin, that begins at the level of the church. And we don't experience God's condemnation because we're believers. But in the church, there is a judgment. There is suffering that sort of works like a refiner's fire, right? So it's not condemnation, but it's judgment in the sense that uh, there is a winnowing in the church. And that's very consistent in the Old Testament. The judgment starts with the people of God, and then it works its way out to the other nations, 
right? And that's what Peter is describing to the church. Hey, there's going to be hard days ahead, and it's going to begin with us. We can already sort of feel the persecution is coming, right? But don't worry, you know, if it's this bad for us, you know, God's going to get us through this. Continue to entrust yourself to a faithful creator, right? That's basically 1 Peter chapter 4. But then, look in verse 5, he goes, So, knowing that, what I just told you, that a coming persecution is coming, so he immediately runs to the elders. Why, why does Peter say persecution's coming and then go, now I need to talk to the elders? Uh, what's going on right there is Peter is actually steeped in the Old Testament, and he knows a book called Ezekiel. And if you've ever read Ezekiel, it's a fascinating story, incredible imagery about how the glory of the Lord left the temple in Israel, uh, but good news, God will one day bring it back, right? That's basically the book of Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel 9, God's judgment begins on his people, the people of Israel. And in Ezekiel 9, when God's judgment starts working its way down, guess who experiences it first? Ezekiel 9 says it starts with the elders. The judgment begins at the level of the church leaders. In Ezekiel, it started at the level of the elders of the people of Israel, and then it works its way out. So I think that's what's going through Peter's mind. He's saying, I'm I'm warning you. I am trying to exhort you to prepare yourself to suffer for the sake of the truth and for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so immediately he knows Ezekiel, And it starts with the elders, and I think that's why he goes here. And he says, so, knowing that, I need to talk to the elders for a second. So, he exhorts them. And so, what then do we do with elders? I mean, what in the world? What's going on with the word elder right there? Maybe you've never even heard that phrase, or maybe you have a misunderstanding, or you've never had someone just sit down and explain what an elder is. Well, you know, uh, sorry if this is a recap for you, but it's helpful to know that that word elder uh, in the Greek is simply presbyteros, presbyteros, which is where we get that weird word in our church name, presbyterian, right? It just means we're a church led not by one CEO pastor, but by an elder who works alongside a group of elders that all share the care of God's flock among them. We are led by a group of elders, which in the Greek you could have said presbyteros, Uh, The other interesting thing is sometimes the New Testament will call that group of people elders. It'll also call them bishops or overseers, which is the Greek word episkopos, which is where the Episcopalian church gets the word Episcopalian because they're a church with bishops. And what's happening in the New Testament, though, is like these are not distinct hierarchies of, you know, rank, like a bishop would not be above an elder Uh, Instead, really, those words are all sort of interchangeable in the New Testament, right? It's interchangeable to the point, if you notice in 1 Peter, that even Peter can call himself a what? Peter refers to himself as what in our passage? In verse 1, it's in your lap. He calls himself a fellow elder. You know, Peter, Peter does not walk in and say, as the rock of the church upon which Christ built, I would like to now talk to you minions. Is that how he talks? That's not the Jesus way. Peter says, I come to you as a fellow elder. Fellow elder. Shepherd the flock of God that is not beneath us and not above us, but among us. Hear the humility in Peter's heart and mind? 
could have claimed so much more authority. Instead, Peter says, I'm a fellow elder. And I don't think he's feigning humility there. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the idea of elders, think of it as a group of the most spiritually mature people who remind us of the Lord, right? That's what elders are designed to be. You know, elders begin as early as the book of Exodus. Uh, you'll read about it if you're doing the Ephraim Co-op, that Bible reading plan. You'll read about it not this week, but the next, because in Exodus, um, you know, uh, good old Moses is trying to be the CEO of all like a million of God's people who have come out of Egypt. Remember that story? And uh, he can't handle it. He's going to have an early heart attack, right? Well, not that early. He's pretty old, but you get the point, right? Moses can't handle all the leadership responsibilities. And who gives him advice? Does anybody know? His in-laws of all people. God can use your in-laws. And his father-in-law, pulls him aside and says, Moses, buddy, you're going to kill yourself. You need some help. You need to raise up some elders who can share the care of God's people. And so that begins a tradition in the Old Testament of having elders who shepherd groups of God's people. And so by the time Jesus arrives in the New Testament, he can interact with synagogue leaders and the elders who would be representing the congregations. And that's what the New Testament carries over because the New Testament times are primarily Jewish by ethnicity. So of course they have groups of elders who lead local congregations. That's been their tradition. And that's who Peter is talking to. You know, there's not necessarily this big hierarchy yet, right? There's not bishops and elders and deacons. It's just all of you who care for the spiritual welfare of other people, let me talk to you. Well, of course, you know, the things that qualify Peter, as he says in verse 1, he describes himself as a witness. That word right there is literally martyr in Greek. Uh, you know, so we use the word martyr almost, you know, sort of like a play on words because martyr simply just means somebody who witnesses to something. But there's that sense that if you witness enough to Christ, it may put you to death, right? And of course, that's what ends up happening to Peter. He's a witness. He's a testimony. He's a, a testifier to the truth of Jesus. Uh, but I love that Peter mentions that. Because, you know, if you're quick, you may start to think about that phrase a little bit more deeply. Peter claims to be a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Does that strike anybody here as odd? When Jesus ultimately suffers on the cross, where's Peter? He actually leaves Jesus. The hour of his betrayal. And of course, Peter witnessed other sufferings of Jesus. All throughout their ministry, Jesus was being rejected. And, and Peter himself is a witness in the sense that he has experienced persecution for Jesus' sake, so he can testify to that. But I think what Peter is uh, maybe reminding us of is that when it comes to spiritual leadership, none of us are qualified. Not even him. The only reason Peter is still on the team even after he denied Jesus, is because after the resurrection, Jesus said, come on, Peter, let's go take a walk on the beach. And Peter thinks he's about to be kicked off, you know, the board of elders, the apostles or whatever, right? He's, I think I'm about to lose my spot on the team. And Jesus asked him three questions. Do you love me? And what does Peter say? He says, yes, you know I do. Do you love me? Yes, you know I do. Do you love me? Yes, you know I do, Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? Lord, your authority over them. Is that what he says? Make sure you squeeze them for every penny. Make many versions of you. Make them followers of Peter. Is that what he says? He says, feed my sheep. <laughs> They're not your sheep, Peter. They're my sheep. 
and if you love me, you'll love my people. Right? That's what it means to be a shepherd and an elder. It's somebody who knows the love of Jesus, who loves Jesus in return, and loves sheep. Because Jesus loves them. They are a conduit of God's love. Right? They are a channel through which God loves and shepherds us. Hear the humility in Peter's heart and mind. He's a partaker of the glory. He's a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He sees himself as a fellow elder with these people that he's never probably even met. And of course, he lives with the end in mind, right? He's a partaker of the glory. He's seen just that much of the glory of Christ at the transfiguration. God revealed just a bit of the glory of Christ, and he can't wait to see Christ return again. You know, Peter lives with the end in mind. So what does Peter then, what does he want shepherds to do? What does he want these elders to do? You know, what is it they're supposed to do? Well, look at verse 2 with me. He tells them. In verse 2, he says, okay, so here's what I want church leaders, uh, excuse me, church shepherds to do. Shepherd the flock of God. Whose flock is it? It's God's flock that is among you, right? Not beneath you, among you. Exercising oversight, being a bishop, being an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, the number one thing elders are meant to do, leaders in the church are meant to do, is to shepherd. It's to shepherd. And I love that idea of shepherding, not because I think, you know, I'm a, you and I are, we're like, I'm not saying we're sheeple. You know, that's kind of a pejorative way um, to say it. But there is a deep sense that we are like sheep. And the Bible loves to use that analogy that humans are like sheep. And I also genuinely believe like 90% that I'm pretty sure God made sheep just to teach us something about ourselves, okay? Let's see if you can kind of go there with me. There's a famous uh, book, it sold millions of copies called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You know that psalm? So a shepherd, a guy named Philip Keller, uh, wrote a book on Psalm 23, and he writes uh, that sheep is a particularly helpful metaphor for people because sheep require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. He goes on to say that sheep are one of the few navigationally challenged animals. Anyone here a navigationally challenged human being? It happened to me last week. I went into Medford. I went into downtown Medford, and I kept turning left. Everywhere I looked, it was a new one-way road. No one else has had that experience. No amens on that. Sheep are one of the few animals that can't find their way home. They can't even find their way home. You drop them somewhere random, they, won't, they don't know which way is north. They can't even groom themselves. Keller goes on and he points out that they're so gross that when they, they defecate, that it all clumps up in the back wool. And if someone doesn't come clean their behinds, they won't even able to go number two. It can kill them. They're literally unclean. They're unclean. They can't groom themselves. Has anyone ever seen that silly sheep, you know, that got lost in the rocks and he's like 13 feet wide? They can't groom themselves. And then Keller points out, you know, Philip Keller, uh, he points out that they are also naturally defenseless. They can't defend themselves. You know, has anyone ever seen a sheep take out a wolf before? It doesn't happen. It never happens. There's never a time when a sheep takes out the wolf. 
But, you know, like, of course, now that I say that, I'm sure, like, someone's going to send me some YouTube clip of, like, you know, Hercules the sheep taking out some wolf. But don't, don't, don't press the point too far, right? The point is, is sheep are defenseless, right? And this reminds us of when Jesus looks at the people in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he looks at the crowds, and he sees that they are defenseless, and they are like what? Sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them right? It's a shepherding model, right? That's what he wants elders to think, uh, seeing God's people as sheep. And they're not ours. Did you notice that? Look at verse 2. Who's, whose flock are they? You know, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I refer to you guys as my church and my people because I love you and I identify with you and I'm in this life with you. But at a, at a deeper level, you're not my people. You're Jesus's people, you're Jesus' flock. And I can never forget that, and neither can the elders. You belong to Jesus. We don't make many disciples of me or of any other human. We are meant to make disciples of Jesus. You know that great dorky movie, The Lord of the Rings? Anybody seen Lord of the Rings? There's that great character. J.R.R. Tolkien wove this theme uh, into his stories about uh, you know, the steward of Gondor. You remember that? There's a guy named the steward of Gondor, and he awaits the king's return. And he's supposed to just steward. He's supposed to manage the kingdom till the king returns. But when the king returns, what happens? He doesn't want to let go of the kingdom. And he has forgotten what he was called to do. He was called to be a placeholder, an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, a steward to the king. He mistook Gondor for his and not his. You know, Paul makes this exact point. Uh, you know, Paul planted a church in Ephesus. Uh, he spent some time there, and then he left to plant more churches. Uh, but a few years later, Paul knew that he was going to uh, go uh, be a martyr for Jesus, go be a witness, and die. And he's actually on his way back to Jerusalem. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm getting kind of near, you know, the highway exit of Ephesus. So I'm going to stop here. I'm going to invite the elders of the church in Ephesus to come, come meet with me because i got something to tell them. And you can read what Paul says to the elders. It's in Acts chapter 20. But notice what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Listen to what he says. This is Paul talking to the elders of the church that he planted. This is Acts 20, verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus obtained his sheep with his own blood because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he reminds the elders to think what? These are not mine. These are Jesus's. And he obtained them with his own blood. Therefore, if I know the love of Christ and I know the love of Jesus, I need to love the sheep the way that Jesus loves me and the way that he would want me to love them. And so that's why Peter goes on and he says, okay, elders, this is what it looks like. Don't, uh, you know, just uh, do it under compulsion. Uh, you know, exercise oversight out of a love for Jesus. And, uh, you know, there's that sense of, you know, um, if you've been in church leadership long enough or probably any level of leadership, you'll know that many times leadership can feel like a duty or a burden. <laughs> it's okay to say amen to that one. I know some of, the elder, some of the elders are in the room and I'm like, oh, come on. You can say amen to that it can feel like a burden and a duty, and um, I get that, and there's times that it is just a duty, 
but I guess what I want to exhort you is that there's actually like a higher level than just serving in the church out of duty. Um, in fact, I think duty is too low of a goal for you. Uh, and I, don't, I, I didn't come up with that. That's actually something C.S. Lewis pointed out to me. Uh, C.S. Lewis was talking about this idea of duty, and uh, he wrote this. He said, a perfect man would never act from a mere sense of duty. Duty is only a substitute for love, like a crutch is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. I know there are times when we serve the Lord and it feels like a duty, but the goal is not to just set a low bar for yourself to just do things out of duty. There's a higher calling. You have legs underneath you. Strengthen your weak knees. <laughs> there is a deeper love that when you shepherd and love God's people, you do it out of a sense of love, that you've received Christ's love and they are his people. Uh, you know, don't, don't mistake the crutch for the leg and don't mistake duty for love. You know, when you, if, if you're going to take your wife out on Valentine's, don't do it out of duty or you may end up using a crutch. There's a deeper calling. You do it out of love, right? If your spouse expects it, how much more the holy God that created this world, that died for us, right? This is what it means. You know, this is how God would have us do it, right? Not for shameful gain, not domineering, not extra, you know, that word domineering is the same word Jesus used in Mark 10 when he says, the Gentiles, those rulers, they love to lord it over them. Peter uses that same word, don't lord your authority over people. Uh, don't use them to abuse them. Uh, don't use them to squeeze every penny out of them. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, this is so, uh, it's so, uh, uh, such a powerful reminder that this was at work in the early church, and it's at work in our church today. You know, um, when I think about this idea of, you know, poor shepherding, it, it, I, I came across a New York Times article a few weeks ago, and it was basically an expose on a church, um, one of the most famous churches in America. And the New York Times, you know, they're not coming from a faith background, obviously. Uh, but these are, um, it's helpful for me, and I think it's helpful for us as Christians to see how the outside, unbelieving world views the church. And what happens when the church does not sound, love, and operate at a deep level like Jesus? And I think this is an example of what can happen to us. Uh, they, they, uh, the, uh, a lead pastor ended up being caught in an affair and, of course, that one affair was really multiple affairs with multiple women. And so he was fired, and the New York Times says he was fired for general narcissistic behavior, manipulating, mistreating people, as well as breaches of trust connected to lying and constantly lying. The New York Times goes on and describes this famous influential church. It had a culture that worshipped wealth while making volunteers cater to leaders as royalty. They go on, they describe the, the lead pastor's uniform. Uh, they, they literally call it a uniform. And it is a St. Laurent leather jacket. I don't even know what that means. I'm assuming it's a, like a fashion thing, right? He has a fashionable leather jacket, ripped jeans, and a low-cut T-shirt. And he often sported a Rolex. Most alarmingly, <laughs> most alarmingly, they say that as staff and leadership grew within the church, they even began to imitate his southern inflected accent. <laughs> Be careful when you hire southerners. 
But if y'all start talking like me, we're all in trouble. Right? Um, and then, you know, you know, this is a powerful article. It's, it's helpful for us to hear how the outside world sees, sees through all of, the, all of just the smoke and mirrors. Right? And, and they go on, they say that they, they interview a, a church leader, you know, a volunteer in the church. And she says that multiple times they would refer to that verse in 1 Samuel that says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The verse is traditionally interpreted as an exhortation to look past appearances, right? Man looks on the outward, but God looks at the heart. Therefore, we should not judge people on their externals. But at this church, the verse was twisted because we cannot doubt that God's presence is here, but we need to attract superficial man. Therefore, it was important for us all to present the best outward appearance as possible. The church seemed to go out of its way to cultivate a hierarchy of coolness, a reserved seating section for VIPs. <laughs> Unless Jesus comes back, I don't think a church has VIPs. A reserved seating section for VIPs appeared at the front of the church and then expanded to multiple rows. What's hilarious to me is I can hardly get anyone to sit in the front row. And I'm like, you guys, you guys got like people to sit in the front row willingly? It's like a punishment for coming late almost, right? I love you on the front row. But, uh, but anyway, the, the lady ends up, you know, the lady who's, you know, one of the church members, she says, uh, the staff built a culture and it made it a big deal. But a lot of us felt torn because it just didn't feel like something Jesus would do. Because when celebrities and sports stars would slip into the main area in the back, content to worship with ordinary churchgoers, volunteers were often instructed to guide them to the VIP section. Now, I mean, it's easy to criticize because that's such an such a over-the-top example. It's so easy to criticize. Uh, my goal is not to criticize, and our goal should not be to think that we are better. In fact, the leap of faith that I want you to take is to recognize that all of those same temptations are in me, are in our leadership, and they're in you. We all want another man to worship. We all love the glory of prestige. But 1 Peter, verse 1, says the glory that comes from man fades. The goal is not to judge that church. The goal is to see it as a warning that all of those same things threaten me, they threaten leaders, and they threaten this church as well. So how in the world is a church, oh, how's the church supposed to combat this, right? How do, we, how, do we, how do we address this? Well, I think there's sort of two answers I would give to that. How do, we, how do we work against this? There's two things. Number one, this is why it is so important for a congregation to know the whole counsel of God. The congregation, you, y'all at this point, y'all need to know what God's standard for leadership is. Because at least in our church context, we elect our own leaders from within. Our church is hopefully a shepherd-producing community, right? And if you don't know what God's standard is, we're going to get the wrong kind of leaders. But you need to know this is what God wants out of leaders. And when you elect elders, this is the kind of things to be looking for. Godly people, right, who sound and act and live like Jesus, right? So one of the, one of the like, how do you keep this from happening? Number one, we need to empower and equip our congregation to know what God's standard is. It's not just my burden to make sure this happens. 
I am an elder among you, telling you this is the standard. It is not Dustin's will be done. I am not trying to make many, M-I-N-I, Dustin's. I'm trying to make many disciples of Jesus. Right? We all carry this. This is why I feel so strongly, and I'll, I, if I've talked to you about this, I'm sorry, but this is why I feel so strongly about church membership because it's so important that God's people are empowered and equipped to recognize what godly leadership is and then to vote and have a say in who those people are. You know, uh, some people think membership is sort of like a way to control you. Uh, the irony is that, honestly, if it's anything, it's a way to control me and the leaders and to hold us accountable. I mean, this is sort of how America was founded, right? We didn't want a king to say, oh, I love you, and I will do what's best in your interests. We said, no, there's, there's a check and balance, right? There's a, there's a benefit to the congregation, to a group of people holding leaders accountable. And this is, we see this all throughout the New Testament. Acts chapter 6, we see that when, when God's people elect deacons, the apostles, the higher-ups, if you speak, they don't choose the deacons, in Acts chapter 6, you know how deacons are elected? The apostles, they say, here's the standard. Choose godly people who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who can do the job. And then they equip the congregation to elect people to do it. So how do we uh, guard ourselves against what happened to that church? Well, one of it is like you as a congregation have to be empowered to know what God's standard is, and then you got to have courage to vote for it. That makes sense? Number two. So that's number one. Number one is the congregation needs to be equipped to know this. Number two, this is why, at least at our church, the way we try to address this, there's no perfect model. A lot of different Christians disagree, but I love them anyway, and who knows? But as far as we can tell from the Bible, this is why churches need a plurality of elders. It should not fall on one guy, Moses, should fall on Moses and a group of elders who share the responsibility to lead and to guide. And so hopefully that's a check on this system. Hopefully that's what the elders do with me and all, elder, and all pastors, right? So there's shared leadership, right? So all that to say, I know many of you are like, who would ever want to be an elder now? Or you may be thinking, what in the world did I sign up for? Why, did anyone think, why would anyone want to do this? Why would anyone want this kind of church leadership, right? Why would you want this responsibility? Well, I think Peter gives you the answer in verse 5-4. Peter writes, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, that word unfading right there is so beautiful. In the Greek, it's aramanth, which is a type of flower that was famous for its red dye. And that red dye would never fade. He says, you'll receive the aramanth crown, the unfading crown. And what Peter, I think, is getting at, he's saying, you shepherd, you love. You clean the back wool off of sheep sometimes when it smells bad. <laughs> you do the hard work of shepherding because Jesus is worth it. That's why. You may never get the thanks you want. You may never get the admiration you want. You may never get the ripped jeans and St. Laurent leather jacket that you want, but you don't do it for that. You do it because Jesus is worth it. You do it because you know Jesus is your chief shepherd. 
I mean, that's the model, right? What did Peter need to see? Peter Peter needed to see Jesus as his shepherd. And he needed to know that Jesus loves him. And then Peter needed to profess his love for Jesus and to hear Jesus tell him to love my sheep. So I guess just to wrap up, you know, that, you know, place yourself back in Peter's shoes, right? Place yourself in Peter's shoes or sandals or whatever he was wearing. And ask yourself again, you know, you're Peter, you're a couple of years from being martyred for Jesus, you're writing to these churches, you're seeing the storm clouds coming, and you're thinking what? What kind of church will survive and thrive? What kind of church can, can fulfill the great commission of proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ to all the nations? What kind of church is going to survive when he's gone? Okay, do you have an idea of what Peter's answer looks like? Now, place yourself in your shoes in the Rogue Valley in 2021. What is it going to take for our churches here to survive and thrive? Friends, it's the same thing, and we're about to find out what it looks like. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us your word And Father, we lift to you all of our elders, past and present, and we thank you for their labor in you, which is not in vain. Lord, we pray that for each one of them, that a deeper sense of your love for them uh, would be true here and true when we take communion in just a few moments. Lord, we pray for our congregation that uh, we would see that we are a household of faith, that we are a priesthood of believers, and that we share this burden of leadership as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.